If you will open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, we'll continue to look, uh, look through our study of 1 Samuel today. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, there's a story a, a long time ago of a man who was shipwrecked on a deserted island. He was the only survivor uh, of the shipwreck and uh, obviously a very desperate situation. And he, he prayed every day for God to, to rescue him, to send someone to, uh, to, for a ship to pass by, for a plane to fly overhead, something that, that would rescue him from this island. Days passed, months passed, and he just he kept praying. But nothing happened, and so he, he gathered up the supplies that he could find from the shipwreck, and he kind of made himself a little hut with the supplies therein. And one day as the, the man was returning to his hut after he had searched for some food, he could see a pillar of smoke. And he ran, and it was his hut, and all of his supplies had caught fire and were, and were burning up. And as you can imagine, that was the worst night on the island for the man. Just completely desperate, completely lonely. You know, all hope was lost. He woke up the next morning and there was a ship on the horizon and a small ship coming towards him. And when he met the ship's captain, he said, how did you know I was here? And he said, we saw your smoke signal yesterday. God can bring great victories during times that we think are sure defeats. He's our help in times of trouble. And in this, this, the text that we'll look at this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 7, he will be the Israelites' help when the Philistine army is, is bearing down on them. And that's, it's significant to think of God that way as their help because for the last couple chapters, what's happened to the Israelites? In chapter 4, when they fought the Philistines, they got whipped. Not only that, but they lost the ark. Then when the ark finally returned to Israel... They were very irreverent with their conduct with it, and so God judged them for that. But now in chapter 7, God is their help. And it's important to notice that, that in chapter 7, we'll see their hearts return to God. It has nothing to do with where the ark is. It has nothing to do with where the Philistine army is. But what changes things in Israel is when they change their hearts. Um, one author says this, he says, Hophni and Phinehas, remember those were the evil priests uh, in Israel, Eli's wicked sons. He said, Hophni and Phinehas had sought to bring victory to Israel by bringing the Lord's ark against the Philistines. That was chapter 4, it didn't work. But this man says, Samuel brought victory to Israel by bringing Israel back to the Lord. And that's what we'll see, that's what we'll see this morning. So look at the first, uh, look at verse 2 through 4. Uh, in, here in 1 Samuel 7, remember the ark has been moved from Beth Shemesh to Kiriath-Jerim, and it stayed there for 20 years, but it seems that over time the hearts of the people kind of begin to soften a little bit, kind of begin to change. So look at verse 2 through 4. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kiriath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. We're told here that all of Israel began to lament after the Lord. And this word for lament 
is, your, is not a common word in the Old Testament. It's not your normal word for sorrow or for mourning. Only used a couple of times. It can mean to wail, to lament, to complain. Um, some suggest that they're uh, you know, bemoaning the ark's location, that it's just in Kiriath-Jerim. There's no great tabernacle for it. There's no great temple for it. And you know, maybe that's part of it, but it seems that their sorrow goes a little deeper than just, oh man, we don't have a good place for the ark. Because they're, they're going to have a complete turnaround here in these couple of verses, especially when Samuel encourages them. It seems there's some what we might call godly sorrow going on here when they're crying after the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. I think that's a little bit of what's going on here in Israel is that it seems like there's some godly sorrow from these people. It's been 20 years uh, after some of the disasters we've read about in the last couple of chapters and at least their hearts are softening maybe in the right direction. They're crying out to God. It is linked though a little bit with what we know of the book of Judges. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, Israel would chase after a false god and, and, and turn their back on the true God, and then God would send someone to oppress them as, as a discipline and as judgment to bring them back to Him, and eventually they get tired of it and cry out to God for help, and He'd help them. Then, you know, Judges, the cycle just repeated itself over and over again, sadly. But that's a little bit of what's going on here, because Samuel's going to bring up uh, deliverance from the Philistines. He says, if you'll return back to God, He'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So remember, we're kind of still in the time of the Judges, even though it's at the tail end of it. The difference here, though, than from most of the stories in the book of Judges, is that they finally have a godly leader who was bold enough to stand up and say, put away the false gods and serve God alone. In the book of Judges, even the judges themselves weren't that godly men. Uh, you can read it. You know, Samson's not the most godly man there ever was. Gideon, I mean, you, you name it, okay? But now they've got Samuel. And he stands up and challenges the people to totally commit to God. And his message was true. It was honest. It was challenging. And he showed the Israelites what we might call both sides of the coin. He gave them the negative and then the positive. And the negative is that you've got to stop worshiping false gods. Here's what has to change. Stop worshiping false gods. And he, he says, put away the strange gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. The word Ashtaroth there refers to uh, female false gods. Um, Samuel makes it clear that they are to completely rid themselves of any and all false gods. During that time, the Philistines and other many pagan groups, they worshiped multiple gods, and what they would do was they would have a male deity and a female companion deity, so to speak. They didn't just believe in one God. They believed in multiple gods and, and kind of made them a pair even. There's even archaeological evidence that sometimes Israel did that. That sometimes in Israel's history, they worshipped God, but they brought along a female companion for him. You think, well, that's not right. No, it's not. But you've read the Old Testament. Most of the things Israel does is not right. And that's what we're to, to learn from their mistakes. It's absolutely wrong to mix true worship and false worship. It doesn't mix. But the Israelites did that. And so if Samuel says, if you're truly returning to God, 
put away all false gods. Even if you have a female deity you claim is God's companion, put her away. They're false gods. And if we want to apply that to our lives today, you can't mix living for God and lusting after the world. Well, I'll, I'll live for God on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday is mine. I'll do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way. Put away the false gods and serve God alone. Be completely obedient to Him. That's the negative side of Samuel's message. It's what they needed to stop doing, stop the false worship. But Samuel doesn't leave him hanging there. There's something positive that they need to do. And, and I want you to think about it this way. If you're getting ready for a long road trip and you checked your car out, make sure there's no problems with it, make sure the tires are okay, the oil's good, you've got gas, you know, all the fluids are looking good. And as you're going over the car, you see a problem. What are you going to do? The tires are bald. We're about to drive 500 miles. At least we know the tires are bald. So let's go. No, you've done the negative. You've found the problem, but the positive is actually fixing it. Buy new tires, right? Then, then let's go on our road trip. Then we're ready for the journey. So you've got to, the negative work's been done. But the positive aspect is correcting those problems. And that's what Samuel's telling the Israelites. The negative is put away the false gods. The positive, he says in verse 3, the middle of the verse, prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve Him only. There's the positive aspect of what they need to do. The word prepare is not a great big word. It means exactly what we think it means. It means to get it ready. To make something ready. It's used in the Old Testament of meals being prepared. Of David preparing the materials of the temple for Solomon to build it. Just getting things ready. Um, so Samuel gave him the problem, idol worship. And now he says how to correct it. You prepare your heart for the Lord to serve Him only. How do you do that though? It sounds good. Prepare your heart to serve the Lord. How? I know how to prepare a meal. How do I prepare my heart to serve the Lord? If we'll, we'll look at what Israel does in, in these verses, and even in 5 and 6, we'll see some things that they do that prepare their hearts in this way. And the first thing they do is they repent. Look what they did in verse 4. The children of Israel did put away Balaam, those are the, the, the male gods, and Ashtaroth, the female gods, and served the Lord only. They repented. Repentance means they changed. There was a complete turnaround in their lives. They turned their backs on those false gods. They put them away. And that's what genuine, true repentance is. It's a turnaround. It's a change. And so one thing that we need to do when we are preparing our hearts to serve God is to repent. Turn from whatever sinful acts that we're doing. Turn our hearts around. And you look at verse 5 and 6. There's a couple more things they do that, that prepare their hearts. Verse 5 and 6 say, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Along with repentance goes confession. They, they, they go together. And that's what the Israelites do here when they gather together to Mizpah. They say, we have sinned before the Lord. 
When you sin, say, I'm a child of God, but I sin. The correct response is not to deny it. It's not to overlook it. It's not to downplay it. It's to admit it and confess it. John wrote in 1 John, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the correct response. And that's something the Israelites do as they're preparing their hearts. They confess their sins. They repent. And another thing they do is they pray. In fact, Samuel says, I will pray for you. When you are preparing your heart to serve God, you need to pray. We should pray for ourselves. I think we all probably do that pretty good. But don't overlook the fact that Samuel here is praying for others. Don't ever neglect to pray for one another. Say, I don't know what to pray. Pray that their heart will be prepared to serve God. You can pray that for anybody, even if you don't know their specific situations and what's going on in their lives. You can always pray, Lord, prepare that person's heart to serve you more. That covers anything. And Samuel is praying for them. You say, so how do I prepare my heart to serve God? How do I make it ready? Confession, repentance, and prayer. Confession, repentance, and prayer. And all three of those things produce and promote humility in our lives. You can't serve God arrogantly. That's an oxymoron. An arrogant servant of God. To serve God, it takes humility. The Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. I'm telling you, if you'll repent and confess and pray, it will foster humility in your life. All three of these things do that. And you see that in verse 6 with what the Israelites do here with their fasting and their pouring out of the water. Those are just symbolic gestures of saying, God, all we need is you. We don't even need water. We don't need food. We're going to totally focus on you. It takes humility to admit that you need something. And it takes a lot of humility to admit that the only thing you need is God. And through their repentance and their confession and their prayer, they have arrived at that point. That God, all we truly need is you. They've gone through some dark days. You know, we've, we've gone through the last couple chapters. Tens of thousands of lives were lost because of Philistine oppression. They lost the ark. Even when it returned, they lost more lives because of their irreverence and disrespect. And it seems like it's been a relatively uneventful last 20 years. You know, 20 years goes by between verses, and we, we're not even told anything that happens. And now they've finally turned back to God. They've finally said, we're done with these false gods, and we're only going to serve the true God. Surely now things are looking up. When the Philistines heard about the large Israelite gathering, they saw it as an opportunity to attack. And so the very first thing that we're going to see when Israel actually turns back to God is their enemies are going to march on them. Look at verse 7. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and went, uh, went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Pretty good tactic by the Philistines. There's a, a large prayer meeting at Mizpah. 
they're not ready for war, let's go attack. They're, they're unassuming. They're unarmed. They're not ready for this. We can get a, a, a bunch of them. They're in one place. Pretty good plan by the Philistines. What I want us to, to realize from this verse is, is this. Don't be surprised if your life gets more difficult when you make an effort to serve God greater or more faithfully. I'm not one of those preachers that will stand up here and say, if you serve God, your life will be just beds of roses and you'll have more money than you can burn in a fireplace. Preachers that tell you that are liars. Okay? They like selling books and having TV viewers. They're not preaching the Word of God. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So don't be surprised if your life gets difficult when you do your best to humbly serve God. The very first thing we see from the Israelites after 20 years of nothing, nothing worth writing in Scripture, the very first thing, as soon as they turn to God, there's an army marching on them. Whatever that may mean in your life, whatever trial it may bring, the devil would love nothing more than to ruin the witness of a faithful Christian. Don't, don't let your guard down when you start serving God. Here, the nation of Israel, they, they've finally met together to rededicate themselves, and the first thing we read is their arch enemies marching on them. This is a sure defeat. Okay? It's their hut going up in flames. They're afraid. In verse 8, they turn to Samuel and they plead for him to pray. Look at verse 8. The children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. This word for cry here is one of the words used several times in the book of Judges when the children of Israel do cry out unto the Lord for deliverance. So it, it links us back to that that we kind of talked about earlier, this, this cycle in the book of Judges. They are crying out for deliverance here. But again, the difference is that this time they've got a godly leader. They've got this man Samuel who, who realizes God's their only hope. I think the people are finally realizing that God's their only hope. Don't stop praying for us, Samuel. I think that's what God wanted them to understand all along, that He is their only hope. It's not the ark. It's not their armies. It's God. God's their help. And so in verse 9 through 11, Samuel will offer a sacrifice to God, and we'll see God respond in a mighty way. Look at verse 9. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. I love that word, discomfited. <laughs> and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came to Bethkar. Samuel cries out to the Lord in a worshipful way. He takes this lamb and offers it as a sacrifice. And before the sacrifice is even consumed, they've got an answer, right? It says, as he was offering it, that the Lord thundered with a great thunder and discomfited the Philistines. A couple things about this thunder. Number one, the Philistines believed that their god, Dagon, or his son, Baal, two false gods, that they were in charge of thunder. 
They were the storm gods. And so God says, I don't think so. He thunders on the Philistines, whose God is the thunder god. God is the one in charge of thunder, not any false god. And he caused it to thunder so loudly, with so much force, that it says they were discomfited, which means they were thrown into confusion. In the Philistine ranks, it was just absolute chaos, disorganization, uh, confusion. They had no clue what was going on. Some of you that are maybe veterans or kind of enjoy military things, we might call this the ultimate flashbang. I asked one of our veterans, Brother Wes, about modern military flashbangs and how they're used and what they do. And he told me that they use light and sound to disorient and confuse the enemy. That when the flash goes off, the light will blind, blind them. And the sound from the blast is deafening if you're close enough to it. And for those around it, it severely disorients them. And so Brother West said that a flashbang will hurt, but it's not meant to be fatal. He said, mostly it'll take anyone who's affected out of commission for seconds to minutes. That's a man-made weapon. That's a man-made flashbang. So you tell me how disoriented and how confused and how panicked these Philistines are when the Lord of the universe thundered a great thunder upon them. I don't know if there was a flash part of this or not. Sure, lightning could have gone with it. I don't know. No, we're not told. But the bang was so loud that they're thrown into such confusion that this... That this this church comes and whips them. They're in a church service, a prayer meeting, with an army bearing down on them, and the army's so confused that the, that the people who were worshiping go out and, and pursue them. There's no other explanation for this huge and unexpected victory except to say that God helped them. No other explanation for this. God had turned their defeat into a victory. And Samuel didn't want them to ever forget that. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. This stone that Samuel took obviously served as a memorial. Maybe it was large. Maybe it was shaped in a peculiar way. Maybe it was just that the place that it was set was, you know, apart from other stones. And obviously it was a, a very distinct stone. It was a memorial stone. And he named it Ebenezer. And we sing that song, right? Come thou fount of every blessing. And we say, here I raise mine Ebenezer. Say, like, what in the world am I raising up? What's, a, what's an Ebenezer? The word Ebenezer in Hebrew means stone of help. Stone of help. And Samuel even explained why he gave it that name. He says, we're going to call this stone Ebenezer, the stone of help, because hitherto hath the Lord helped us. We've come this far because of God's help. We're here because of God's help. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Every one of us is different. And we've all faced different trials. 
we've faced different challenges, we've faced different sorrows, different victories, different triumphs. But no matter what you've gone through in your life, whether good or bad, you're here because of the Lord's help. He's the one that gave you the good times, and He's the one who helped you through the bad times. If it wasn't for the Lord's help, when the trials come, there would be nothing to live for. There would be nothing to look for. There would be no reason to, to crawl out of bed the next day. But we have a God who helps. Even when a Philistine army is breathing down our necks and we're praying. So I don't know what you have gone through in your life. I know some, but I don't know everything. Be so thankful that we serve a God who is our help. Understanding that truth and knowing that will drive us right back to what we said earlier about serving Him with humility. When you understand how much help God's given you in your life, it ought to make you want to serve Him and it ought to humble you to serve Him. It ought to create that desire. Verse 13 through 17 of the chapter, we'll read these quickly. These verses read like your typical summary at the, in the book of Judges that kind of summarizes after a battle uh, Israelites' relationship with, with her neighbors and also Samuel's leadership. Look at verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath, and the coasts thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. You whip one enemy pretty good, the other enemy wants to be your friend. Yeah. Hey, uh, maybe we should have a truce, Israel. Verse 15, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. <clears throat> and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. The last few verses here summarize Samuel's ministry and his work among the people. We know from earlier in the book that his ministry, his, his influence spread throughout the nation. Chapter 3 says that all Israel knew that he was a prophet from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying from, from New York to L.A. All Israel knew Samuel was called to be a prophet of God. We see here that, that Israel kind of gathers together, unified at Mizpah under Samuel's leadership. So he has a, an influence that spreads... But sometime when you got a free moment, look up these cities that are mentioned, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and Ramah, and you'll see that this circuit that he judges at is actually pretty small. These cities aren't all over Israel. It's, it's a pretty small geographical area. And so it's interesting. We know his influence spread, but the circuit's pretty small here of where he actually is judging from. You say, why does that matter? It sets us up for the next couple of chapters. Because even though they have this leader who has some influence over all of them, they're still not exactly like other nations. They want a king. Even after God has shown them his thunder, what he can do when they'll turn their hearts back to him, they still want to be like other nations. In the next couple chapters, we're going to see that. We're going to see their, their cry for a king. God will give them one. Sometimes be careful what you wish for, right? 
this morning, if you've turned your back on God like Israel did, or maybe you're just going through the motions, I'll echo Samuel's words. Put away the strange gods and prepare your heart to serve God alone. There's no better day than today. And I know the strange gods look a lot different today than they did a thousand years ago. I highly doubt that any one of you has, has some carved image on your window at home that you're going to go down and bow down and worship to. I highly doubt that. You better not. But anything that consumes your life more than God is an idol. Whether that be your job, your family, your money, your hobbies, your habits, you name it. Say, there's nothing wrong with my family. I know that. There's nothing wrong with my hobby. I know that. Things that are fine and things that are good can be idols if we're more obsessed with them, if we care more about them than we care about God. But if we'll put God first, everything else falls in line. So I, I want to be my, the best husband and dad I can be. My family's number one. If you want to be the best husband and dad you can be, put God number one and you will be the best husband and dad you can be. Same thing to moms, same things to brothers, sisters, children. Put God first, serve Him only, and I promise you, you'll be the best son, daughter, brother, sister, worker, boss, you name it, that you can be because your priorities are right. Your priorities are in line. So prepare your heart to serve God alone. How do I do that? Confession, repentance, prayer. Those things will lead to humility. Humble yourself before God and He'll always be your rock of help. You may be going through a trial right now that you can't face on your own. God will help you if you'll turn to Him. He's right there. He'll help. I mentioned this earlier, but notice that the return of the ark didn't change a thing for Israel. But when their hearts returned to God, that's when things changed. So don't worry about so much about where things are at or what things are being done. Worry about your heart, where it's at. Other things will fall in line. It doesn't mean there won't be battles. As soon as they rededicated themselves, here's an army. But God was with them. And they knew the only place they could turn was God. Maybe that's what God wants in our lives, is for us to, to realize that the only, the only place we can look for help is Him, that He's our only hope. Maybe He just wants to show us how loud He can thunder. Maybe He wants to show us that He can take that burning hut and make a smoke signal out of it. Maybe He'll just bring us through the trial slowly to teach us that His grace truly is sufficient. When we reach that awareness that we need God's help, And that where we are right now, no matter what you've gone through, you're here because of God's help. Man, it ought to create a desire to serve Him more. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. Let's stand and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and for the encouragement and the truth that we find in it. We pray that our hearts will be prepared to serve you for your glory. And we thank you for your help. We ask for your help, and we need your help, Lord, in our lives.
We thank you so much for Jesus and for what he did for us on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.